You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We're in a new series today uh, on the book of Nehemiah. So take your Bibles out, find that book. Uh, It's right between uh, Ezra and Esther right? Um, Which is not helpful to most of you at all. Hate people who say stuff like that. Um, It's the 16th book of the Old Testament. Uh, If you can find Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you'll find Ezra, and then next to it is Nehemiah, and like I said, Esther thereafter. Uh, Today's message will be quite different than a, uh, a normal message in that I have to do a bunch of backfilling today. I have to give a bunch of history. Uh, which is very important for us. I can't skip over that or else we won't appreciate the context and the setting leading up to the book of Nehemiah. But I, I, I do it without apology because one of the things that I think we have trouble with in our understanding of the Old Testament is that we don't really understand the context of it. A lot of us can teach verses by verses, verse by verse through the Bible and through Bible books. But if you were to ask some of those same people who are very diligent in going verse by verse through the Bible to say, can you do a 10 minute summary of the Bible, all 66 books, they'd really struggle with it and specifically struggle with the Old Testament. So I wanna spend some time, like I said, giving some history and context, which is helpful to this study in particular, but in general as well, all right? So um, let me pray, then we'll start doing that. And on the back end uh, of our time together, we'll, uh, we'll look at chapter one. I'm gonna work really hard for you. I ask that you work really hard for me too, and then we'll, we'll hit the bricks thereafter. So Father, please help us, help us stay attentive, help me to be clear. Uh, Help me to be clear in in laying out the groundwork for what takes place in this great book, this wonderful book that is so relevant to us. So I pray against distraction and agendas and to-do lists that we would be able to stop now and hear from you by way of your word. This is you speaking. Uh, These are your words to us. So I pray that we would hear them and that we would respond in kind to them in ways that you would purpose for us. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go all the way back and start in the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 12. There, God calls a man named Abram and his wife Sarai to leave the land in which they lived and go to a land that God would show them. God sent them with the following promise. Let me read it for you, Genesis 12, 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. This is the beginning of what will be the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen ones, called God's chosen ones because there is nothing Abram did to lay the groundwork for this calling from God. God just chose him. Abram had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel literally means struggles with or wrestles with God. E-L at the end of Israel, if you've ever studied the names of God, should stand out. Struggles or wrestles with God. Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons who became the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. Um, Long story short, in a time of famine, the uh, family traveled to Egypt 
where Joseph, a brother that had been sold into slavery by his brothers, unbeknownst to them, is now second in charge in Egypt. He's the prime minister. The family reunites. They stay in Egypt. They breed like bunnies for 400 years. Joseph has died. The Pharaoh he served under has died, and the Pharaoh who is now reigning knows nothing about Joseph, knows nothing about the Pharaoh that he reigned under, and knows nothing about the family of Israel. All he knows is that there's a whole lot of them. And so what he does is he places them in hard slavery. They, the nation of Israel, in hard slavery, eventually cry out to God. God hears their cry, sends Moses, who frees them from their bondage. Cole's notes hereafter. They journey for 40 years in the wilderness, where along the way Moses receives the law, Mount Sinai, the Mosaic law, with the following promise from God. Let me read this promise to you. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. The nation, now Israel, enters the promised land and shortly thereafter, they eventually cry out for a king. They're looking at what the nations around them are doing. They're raising up kings and so they wanna follow their lead. So Israel's first king is raised up, uh, a man named Saul, he is man's king, whose reign, which had moments of success, is an overall disaster. Saul is succeeded by David, God's king. This is what God says to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, excuse me, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Quite the promise, important promise. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon succeeded David as king, and he was commissioned to build Israel's first temple in the city of Jerusalem. David had made the epicenter, Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things Jewish and the Israelite people. That temple that Solomon was commissioned to build in Jerusalem was to replace the portable tabernacle, the tent, the tent of tabernacle that had traveled with the people during their wilderness journey in, in uh, the lead up to the promised land. At the dedication of that temple, Listen to what God says to Solomon. This one is on the screen behind me. It's a longer text, but it is so all important for us to understand the book of Nehemiah. God says, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised your father David, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. If you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them. And I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will scoff. They will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. They held on to other gods and bowed in worship to them and served them. Because of this, the Lord brought all this ruin on them. 
As I said, all of this sets up what comes next. Specifically setting the setting for the book of Nehemiah. Let, let me explain this. Things could not have begun better for the nation under the reign of Solomon. Solomon took over coming out of David's reign and was leading a unified kingdom, a unified nation. All 12 of those tribes unified together. However, at the death of Solomon, the nation split into two. 10 nations to the north who took the name Israel with them, forming that nation of Israel with two tribes to the south, calling themselves Judah. Two tribes made up Judah, Judah the most prominent, and then Benjamin. Um, rock star, rock star tribes. That's why when Paul says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, rock star status. And I'll tell you why that is in just a moment. So the nation is now split into two, and Israel quickly turned from God, followed the patterns of the nations around them, and was punished by God rightly by way of the nation of Assyria in 722 BC, who conquered Israel and dispersed the people. 2 Kings 17 sums it up this way in what takes place. This disaster happened because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they worshiped other gods. So that's what happens with Israel. But although Judah, and this is why they were rock stars in a sense, stayed longer, stayed more faithful to God and his, his commands, they too eventually, under a king named Zedekiah, rebelled against the Lord. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians, who had replaced the Assyrians as the global empire, and under a king named Nebuchadnezzar, conquered Judah. But not only that, they destroyed the temple. And they burned and they tore down, tore down the walls and the homes within Jerusalem, and they dispersed the people, taking the best and the brightest with them. Think Daniel, if you've ever studied the book of Daniel. So where are we at this point? The, the people are ex exiled. That's where we are. No land. No city, no temple, no walls, no home, no king. That's where we are. Only a few poor and destitute people, not the best and the brightest, are left behind. In Jerusalem and the surrounding villages, every, everyone else has been disper dispersed and taken. This is the bleakest of all scenarios. That's where we are all coming by way of the people's rebellion in spite of two things, in spite of God's warning, but in spite of his goodness. The people rebelled against a God who set them free from bondage, who provided for them, who kept them and fed them and led them into the promised land. In spite of his warning, but more importantly, in spite of his goodness, so, so if you're the nation, at this point, what do you have left? If you're exiled and you're a remnant of a people, what do you have left? Well, you, you have only one thing left, and that is the promises of God. 
The covenant promises of God first uttered about 1,300 years previous to Abram, but repeated to people like Moses and David and Solomon. Promises like he would build them into a nation of priests. And David's throne would last forever. Promises, however, that said that if they abandoned the Lord, they would be cut off. But promises as well, and hear me on this as we enter the the book of Nehemiah, that if they turned to God again, he would forgive their sin and restore them. That restoration, Midtown, that restoration as we enter Nehemiah began 100 years ago. A hundred years ago, by way of a man named Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia. Persia took over from the Babylonians as the global empire, and he decreed in the very first year of his reign that the Jewish people exiled in bondage to the Babylonians and now the Persians be allowed to return to Jerusalem. Now the question is, why would he do that, man? Why would Cyrus do that? Did he follow God? Did he love the Jewish people? Well, the answer is no. Instead, Isaiah 45, 4 says this. You can read it behind me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you. That you is Cyrus. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. So God placed Cyrus in his position as king of Persia. He strengthened him to that position. But not only that, look at what we see in 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to decree, I will build God a temple at Jerusalem in Judah, Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. Amazing. And this hints at one of the major themes of the book of Nehemiah, something that we're going to see throughout throughout this series, that being the sovereignty of God. That God reigns supreme. God raised up Cyrus. God roused Cyrus's heart to allow God's people to return in spite of Cyrus not knowing God. At the very least, this should encourage us and our prayer for our leaders, many of whom don't know God. Pray that God would rouse their spirits to do what, if left to themselves, they would never do. After all, there is no one in a position of power today that doesn't have that position unless God raised them up. And I say that because all authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus' authority, right? Great Commission, all authority. And therefore, any authority you have, I have. Lead, pastor, parent, boss. All authority is Jesus' authority. All authority is gifted to us. So it's not just our politicians. It's borrowed authority because it's all his. So it should encourage us to pray for our leaders that God would work in them as we pray for one another. Jesus makes this clear in his conversation with Pilate. 
Paul makes this clear in his, his writing in, in Romans chapter 13. The, the return, let's go back to the book, or at least the pre- preview to the book. The return, this, this phase in, this return, this restoration that began 100 years ago happens in three phases. Phase number one happens under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a politician. Uh, he was also a religious leader. Most importantly, he was the grandson of the last son of, grandson of the last king of Judah. So there's a, there's a kingly aspect to his leadership, really important in the story of God. He went back with the aim, aim and end goal with a remnant of people to uh, refurbish, restore, rebuild the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. That happened, like I said, 100 years before Nehemiah. It happened under year one of Cyrus's leadership. You can read about that in Ezra chapters one to six. By the way, if you want to really appreciate the book of Nehemiah, read Ezra. It's 10 chapters long. It's, it's great. Lots of turns and good enough for a movie. Phase two took place under Ezra. Ezra was a priest. This took place about 70 to 80 years after uh, the return of Zerubbabel. He returns, Ezra returned with a remnant to reestablish the people as a people coming under the authority of God's word. You can read about his story, like I said, in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapters 7 to 10. Ezra sums up his role this way, and you can read this behind me. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. It's a great mission statement, by the way. He will pop up again in Nehemiah because he serves a similar role in the book of Nehemiah as well. And then there's phase three. Phase one's rubbable. Phase two, Ezra. Phase three, this takes place about 13, 15 years after Ezra departed, King Artaxerxes is now the king of Persia. This phase is headed up by Nehemiah, whose goal was to rebuild the walls and the homes of Jerusalem. However, his intentions were much greater than that, as we will see as as we go through the weeks ahead. So that's the lead up to Nehemiah. That's 1,300 or so years of history But before going to the book, why study Nehemiah? Why are we doing this? Well, a few quick reasons why. First, it's the last book of history in the Old Testament. Chronologically speaking, although the book of Nehemiah is number 16 out of 39 books in the Old Testament, you could put it chronologically as number 37, 38, or 39 and attach it to Esther. So it's the last book of history, as I said, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, uh, the last three books uh, in your table of contents in the, book of, in the Old Testament, were contemporaries of Nehemiah. They were the prophets that spoke to the people during his time. But why is that important? Who cares? Well, it's important because after Nehemiah, the next thing to take place is what? historically speaking, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But before that happens, God brings his people back to Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. The people have been restored. And the walls and the homes remade. 
next recorded event is the arrival of Jesus. And therefore, Nehemiah, if you really want to appreciate what comes next, needs to be understood. Nehemiah is a table-setting book for the coming of Jesus. We will see why this is important as we move ahead. But this leads to a second reason why we should study the book of Nehemiah, and that is because the book ends tragically. Not to give away the punchline, but although there are many things to celebrate in the book of Nehemiah, it ends with the people once again forsaking the Lord and Nehemiah angry and despondent. That's the end. Roll the credits. But this is great. And, and this is great because even though this is the last book of history in the Old Testament, it's not the last book in God's story. And although we are going to learn much from the leadership of Nehemiah in the weeks ahead, he's not the hero of the story. And even though the book leaves you scratching your head and going, man, if Zerubbabel can't do it, and, and Ezra can't do it, and, and Nehemiah can't do it, if they can't accomplish God's purposes and plans, then who can? Great question. And the answer is given 400 years later. And therefore, number three, the story of Nehemiah and why we should study it is our story too. Yes, the story of Nehemiah is a story about the rebuilding of walls and homes of Jerusalem, but it's more a story about the rebuilding of a people by way of the grace of God who come together under the word of God committed to the glory of God and being a light to the nations and to the ends of the earth. It's a story that displays, therefore, please get this, in narrative form, in story form, the call of the church, which is built up as what? Living stones. With Christ being the cornerstone. It's a book that points ahead to the better temple which isn't a building but Jesus himself, and a new Jerusalem, which isn't a city, but the people of God. And therefore, it's worth studying. Lastly, we should study the book of Nehemiah because of what we learn about God in it. God is so beautiful in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah paints this picture in vivid colors of a gracious God, a promise-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God, a protecting God, a sovereign God. It paints a picture of a God who stands supreme over the earth, which is that any more relevant and important to note today when our earth, when our world seems to be spinning so, so much out of control? And so for that reason and reason alone, it's worth studying, but there's many other reasons as well. So all of that is background. Thanks for hanging tough with me. Let's go to the book. Put your eyes, then in verses one and two, I'll stop, and then we'll go from there. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress or capital city of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. So we know Judah. Okay, Judah, that's really important. Southern kingdom broke off from the northern kingdom. It's where Jerusalem is. Men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So stop here. Only a couple verses, but we learned so much. 
What do we learn? Well, first, we're told that it's the month of Chislev. When is that? Well, around November or December. It's winter time. Knowing this will become more important as we hit chapter 2. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa, which makes sense because not only was this an important city in Persia, it was also the winter home of the king. And the king at this time, as you know, is King Artaxerxes. Speaking of that king, King Artaxerxes is in the 20th year of his reign in verse 1, which means that this is, if we can kind of figure out the historical math, this is the halfway point for the empire of Persia. It's going to be overrun by Alexander the Great in the mid-300s. Going to verse 2, a convoy shows up in Susa. Included in that convoy from Jerusalem is Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, and so Nehemiah asks him, what's the latest with Jerusalem? And how are the people doing there? Before looking at the answer in verse 3, a couple of things to note about Nehemiah already at this point. First, more than likely Nehemiah was born in Persia and not in Judah and not in Jerusalem specifically. Remember, the overthrow of that nation happened over a hundred years before this. And two, he probably had never been to Jerusalem. He wasn't born when Zerubbabel went back. That was a hundred years before. And he obviously hadn't joined Ezra either. Additionally, making it difficult for him to go back is he had a job. And not just any job, Nehemiah worked for the monarchy. He worked for the king, and therefore he couldn't just come and go whenever he wanted. But I bring this up, and you may go, hmm, what's the, who cares? I bring this up because in spite of that, not being born there, never visiting there, he had a heart for the city. And he had a heart for the city because it wasn't just any city, it was God's city. We will see the descriptor holy city again and again in Nehemiah. It's a holy city, it's God's city, and it's a holy city because God chose to use that city to meet with his people in the temple located in the city on Mount Zion. And so he had a heart for the city because of what it represented, because what, it, what, what was connected to it. But not only that, he also had a heart for the people. He wanted to know not just, hey, how's the city doing? He wanted, how are the people doing? To sum it up, and this may seem very simplistic, Nehemiah cared. He cared. He shows it here. And the, the reason why I point this out, because if you were ever to study the great works by Christian men and women over the century, great works aren't birthed primarily out of need. Or, or the gifting of the person who is giving leadership to it, it's birthed primarily out of care and passion. Not need and gifting. And Nehemiah cared. He cared about the city, he cared about the people, and he cared about the glory of God. And at a time when apathy is probably the best descriptor for the church today in the West, this is a breath of fresh air. He cared. Nehemiah would have also known about the pilgrimage of Ezra 
But as we will see when we get to chapter 8, Ezra is still in Jerusalem. He hadn't come back. And as much as we know, no news has come back. Nehemiah would have also known that when Zerubbabel went back 100 years previously, that during his pilgrimage, there was an attempt to rebuild the walls then, but false reports came out from the nations around Judah, and so the king at that time stopped the rebuilding of the walls. But what Nehemiah wants to know now is what kind of progress has happened under Ezra? Because there's no news, there's no newspapers, there's no Google, there's no phones. Ezra hasn't come back. And how far is Susa from Jerusalem? A thousand miles. Here to Saskatoon by foot or camel. You ever ridden a camel? It's a long thousand miles. And so when these, when these guys roll into town, the first thing on his mind is, what's the latest? What's the latest, guys? Tell me some good news. Well, the answer is rather bleak. Look at verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. So as it relates to the physical infrastructure of Jerusalem, no progress had been made. The walls and the gates are still in disrepair. They're torn down, they're burned. And therefore, we understand why the people there would have been in great trouble. Because walls fortified cities. No walls, no protection from your enemies. But why would the walls being torn down and the gates burned be a disgrace to the people. I get the trouble, but why the disgrace? Well, the answer is because, what, because of what they represent. They were a constant reminder of God's judgment on their sin and rebellion. And therefore, the torn down walls represents a torn down people. Do you remember that warning that God gave Solomon that I read a few minutes ago? Though this temple is now exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and, and they will scoff. They'll mock you. They will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt. And they abandoned him even though he was a good God. They held on to other gods and bowed and worshiped to them and served them. Because of this, the Lord brought all this ruin on them. Disgrace. But additionally, and I have to borrow this thought, there must have been some doubts about God's promises mixed, mixed in with their disgrace. What about being a nation of priests? What about David's throne being a forever throne? What, what about being a light to the nations? Now they were just a punchline. They, along with their God, being mocked and scoffed at. Were they too far gone? Was there any hope? Was God still for them? 
After all, it had been a hundred years. That's the news. So how does Nehemiah respond? Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. <laughs> you know, there are times when we hear news or hear of something, and our response is to sympathize, maybe shed a tear or two, and say things like, man, that's so sad, and then we move on. But then there are times where we hear of something and our response coming from the internal of who we are is, I have to do something. Like, I don't care what anybody else does. I, I, have, I have to go. I have to do. I have to serve. I have to give. That's verse 4 for Nehemiah. Nehemiah's whole life is going to change in verse 4. It does change in verse 4. But the first thing he does before anything else, is pray. He doesn't start moving and he doesn't start doing, he starts praying. As I said earlier, Nehemiah is not the hero of the book of Nehemiah, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn some things from him. And one of those things that we learn is that he was a man of prayer. He was a great leader, certainly, but Nehemiah wasn't a great leader who prayed. Nehemiah was a great leader because he prayed. And there's a big difference. This is the first of what will be nine prayers of Nehemiah recording in the book of Nehemiah. With the few minutes that I have left, and I only have a few, let me touch upon a few things that we learn from his prayer. First, it's genuine. He sat down, and he wept, and he mourned. One person commenting on this said, Nehemiah's heart broke over the things that broke God's heart. Do you know what Nehemiah does here? Nehemiah does here what Jesus does later when he wept as well over Jerusalem because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. Secondly, it's sacrificial. His prayer is sacrificial. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that all of our giving should be sacrificial. In Nehemiah's case, he sacrificed time and he sacrificed food. He fasted and prayed for a number of days before the Lord on behalf of the people. Secondly, thirdly, excuse me, it's persistent. As I just mentioned, he mourned, he fasted, he, he wept, and he prayed for a number of days. And he writes in verse 6 that he prayed day and night. But there's more. Because if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it's not until the month of Nisan that Nehemiah has a chance to talk to King Artaxerxes about going to Jerusalem. When is the month of Nisan? Well, it's four months after the month of Chislev. Remember that? What does that mean? Well, it means it's about 120 days later. And I think it's safe to say that Nehemiah was praying all that time. In fact, when you look at verse 1, it seems that he's still mourning 120 days later. Again, why is that important? Well, I hate, hate to give, give away the end of the story, so spoiler alert, but eventually the walls get rebuilt. Sorry for giving away the, the ending. This actually happens in the middle. The walls are rebuilt. How long did that take? 52 days. 
which means what? Meaning, it means that Nehemiah spent over twice the time praying as he did building. There has to be something in that for us. Fourthly, it's knowledgeable. Nehemiah is knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about two things in particular. Nehemiah knows who God is, and he knows who, who's God's, who God's people are. Look, look at verse 5. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands. Nehemiah's prayer here in verse 5 starts out like the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, Nehemiah begins here, our God of the heavens. And it reminds us, again, as I touched upon earlier, that as overwhelming as things can seem here, our God stands supreme over it, with the heavenlies his kingdom and the earth his footstool. But what Nehemiah also knows about God is he's a great God, an awesome God, a gracious and covenant-keeping God with those who love him and keep his commands. All things Nehemiah begins with in his prayer. But I have to think all things that perhaps the people in Jerusalem are perhaps doubting and struggling with. What Nehemiah knows about God's people is seen in verse 10. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. This is great. This is Nehemiah going to God and going, God, these aren't just any people. They're not just any servants. God, they're yours. They're your people. You redeemed them. You, you saved them by your strength, by, by your strong hand. He knows who these people are, and he reminds God of it. More on that in a bit. Fifth of the last two. I have two more. Fifth, it's, it's a penitent prayer. Penitent, uh, sorrowful. If you, ever, if you ever spent time in a penitentiary, um, it's a place of sorrow. It's a place of mourning. It's a place of repentance. That's what a penitentiary is. So this prayer is a penitent prayer. It's a confessing prayer. It's a mournful prayer. But it's a, a repentance and a mournful prayer that Nehemiah owns with the people. Really stands out. Verses 6 and 7. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the, confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Hmm. What do we do with this? I ask because Nehemiah doesn't strike me as a, a guy who acts corruptly. His life, as we will see, as we've seen already, demonstrates a great reverence for God and his commands. So why does he include himself in this prayer? Well, I think, number one, I'll give you two reasons why. Very quickly, no one is guiltless from breaking the commands of God, regardless of your commitment to them. But number two, and this is something that we are going to be challenged in over the months ahead in the world in which we live, where self is the greatest of idols. We're going to be really challenged in this. 
But God's covenant is with a people, not a person. God's promises are to a people, not a person. And God's call is to a people, not a person. God God promised to raise up a nation. He promised to raise up a kingdom, not a bunch of individuals. And therefore it made sense that Nehemiah pray on behalf of the people and included himself in that group. But Midtown, the same is true for us today. God is raising up a family. He's raising up a body. He's raising up a a household. He's raising up a city. We talk a lot about personal relationship with Jesus, personal devotions, personal time. All of that is good, but that is just a small, small part of our walk with Jesus. The Christian faith is a community faith. It's not an individual faith. We are saved individually. We grow and we do life together corporately. And therefore, it's very appropriate for you and me to pray on behalf of the church. And so I think we get a picture of that here. The word church literally means assembly. It means gathering, which is why Paul can say things like when one suffers, we all suffer. Why? Because we're a part of one another. Lastly, about his prayer, it's a confident confident prayer. Verses 8 and 9. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. I I like how one person summed up this portion of Nehemiah's prayer when saying, Nehemiah doesn't demand of God, but asks God for what they don't deserve. Grace. Grace to remove their disgrace. But as we begin to wrap up, there's something else that Nehemiah does in these verses that we can learn from. He prays God's promises back to him. He he says to him in these verses that I just read, he says to him, remember, God, remember what you promised Moses. And then what he does is he quotes in part from Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God through Moses said the following to the people. It's the last text for today um, on the screen. When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, like Assyria, like Babylon, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all of your heart and all of your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today, then he will restore your fortunes. He'll have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your ancestors possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your ancestors great. I I heard someone say recently that prayer, in part at least, is asking God for what he promised to do. That's what Nehemiah does here. 
God, remember what you said? Remember what you said. And we can remind God of what he has promised to do, and we can remind him of those things with confidence, for God is always true to his word. Nehemiah's prayer ends in verse 11. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. He was the wine taster. Sometimes God calls kings, sometimes he calls priests, and sometimes he calls wine tasters to great works. We'll look at that more in detail next week. As I close, and I know I I need to, because your pot roast is cooking, I get it. What, What are our takeaways from this? I mean, weird message. What are our takeaways? Well, I'll leave you with some questions to chew on as we go into a time of response. First question. Does your heart break for the things that break God's heart? What what describes your feeling towards God's glory and God's people? Care or apathy? Secondly, are you a person of prayer? Does prayer precede action and weave its way through all you do? Another question, are you living in a place currently of sin and rebellion in spite of God's goodness towards you? He redeemed you. He saved you, provided you. But in spite of that goodness, are you living in a place of sin and rebellion? Couple more questions. As we live here and now as exiles in a new Babylon, and we do, do you live in light of God being the God of the heavens? That as crazy as our world seems currently, God stands supreme over it, or are you doubting his promises to you? And tie to that and last, Do you know who God is? And do you know who you are in Christ? Because if you are in Christ, you are a Christian, that means you are his. You're his people. You're his servant. He redeemed you. Do you know that? Do you know his promises and do you pray them back to him? Those questions can be answered immediately, but the remedy for them may take some time, but Midtown, the time is now. The time is now. So bring them to the Lord as we respond and be honest. If you're apathetic and you don't care, tell God he knows that. I'm apathetic. I don't care. I don't care for the lost. I don't care for the church. I don't care for reading my Bible. I don't care about prayer, but I want to. If that's your cry, I want to. Turn my heart of stone into something softer. Stir my affections. Help me, God. Be honest. And don't pray by yourself. Pray with the body. Come up front and pray with the couple up here. Stop doing life alone.
You're not meant to. That's not your call. You're not to huddle just with your own personal familial or family, nuclear family, but the family of God. We need each other. So come and be prayed for as we remember Jesus by way of a common community, communal, communal, communion meal. So would you rise as we pray? Stop talking, Norm. Let's respond. Let's pray together. And so, Father, I do, I pray. I pray that now as we respond to a bunch of stuff, a fire hose of a sermon, lots of stuff to think and chew on, I pray if some of those questions resonate, that we wouldn't run from them, we wouldn't quickly pack up and leave and just kind of get back to life, but we would consider what you're doing by way of your word and your spirit, going to the, to the joint and the marrow and dividing it, going to the places that need to be, to be gone into. And I pray that we would respond in kind to, to the ways that you would have us, please. Please, and I pray that as we move forward in this, in this new year in 2022, when, when there's so much confusion out there, so much heat out there, that we, this place, we call it an auditorium, but it's a sanctuary. It's a sanctuary. We have sanctuary from the world coming together as the body being restored and then going back into the world that you have sent us into, not to, to be of, but certainly to be in with the message of the gospel. So may this be a sweet response, a time of ministry for the glory of your name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.